Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and nonfiction writer. Today on the pod, we start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's been on our minds this week in the world of romance. Today, Nav tells us what's new in romance scams. We go a little bit deeper than we meant to, concocting our own personal plans to make millions. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, it's a We'll Always Have Paris First, a love story based on a song. We'll break down 1969's Where Do You Go To, My Lovely by Peter Sarstedt, reading way too much into the love story and talking about what rich bohemianism looks like in Paris today. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters or entities from our main love story. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. Can I ask you both, what do you think a romance scam is? Or like the Tinder swindler would be my, um, you know, assumption. That's my my main knowledge, which is, um, I forget what he did. He kind of like... He swindled people on Twinder. Twinder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he, he pretended to be a billionaire and he took these women out on these kind of exotic dates. But it was sort of like, a, but he was being paid for by other women who he had also taken out on exotic dates. Exactly. Um, and then at a certain point, he would be like, uh, my enemies are coming. You need to send me money. And so they would send him money because they were in love with him. And he'd say, I, I'm in love with you. And uh, that's why you need to send me money. And yeah. Yes. So look, I listen to Scam Goddess Religious. Amazing. So- You're part of the congregation. <laughs> there we go. How long do we have is my answer to this question. This is actually going to be a Scam Goddess recap. Ten-minute episodes. Sorry, Chris. We're now a Scam Goddess fan podcast. Um, basically, but it can be as complicated as that, or it can simply be like a combination of the, like, you know, long-lost royalty scam mm-hmm. with like the love angle where it's like you're kind of catfishing once the person falls in love with this online presence you ask for money they send you money um i actually saw that there were like they ranked states by who was most yeah. likely to get scammed yeah. i forget which which the highest one was well it's at this point in the united states it's one of the most common and one of the costliest scams that is perpetrated against American citizens. It happens constantly. And basically, both of you are absolutely correct. Uh, 
according to wikipedia.org, a romance scam is a confidence trick involving feigning romantic intentions towards a victim so that it can include gaining access to the victim's money, bank accounts, credit cards, passports, or forcing the victims to commit financial fraud on their behalf. Um, And so it's both an extremely broad category and very narrow in its aims. Basically, I use your loneliness, I use your affections against you, I gain a lot of money, and I fucking disappear. See, I think the thing that I'm going to fixate on there is not the main point at all. Mm-hmm. Have you met me? The I, I definitely have like an old-fashioned language fetish. So you call it a confidence scam, and I'm like, ooh, tell me more. Yeah, I am in. But it's interesting because when I was reading about romance scams, even though it is its own separate category of fraudulent behavior, as I was saying, it's one of the most common, one of the most expensive in the U.S. alone, never mind across the globe. And it's also, of course, really, really hard to get your money back, never mind actually name people, because it's actually becoming rarer, uh, apparently, for it to be one person, right? Like, it is usually, like, a network of people. It's or a network. It's either a network of people or someone who works on behalf of a scamming agency of some sort. And so they're outsourcing. Sorry, it's scamming agency. <laughs> Honestly, outsourcing scam is a 21st century conundrum that we're all in. Um, and there are really lots of different categories. A couple that I had never heard of in terms of specific categories is something called a pro-dater. Have either of you ever heard of a pro-dater? I've not. I, I, this, again, this kind of goes to Rachel's excitement about the the actual kind of like use of the word confidence uh, like confidence trick the actually categories of confidence trick is a really exciting thing to engage in and uh, flesh out if you've ever been on the wikipedia page where you go through all of the different categories of confidence trick and it's like oh what a cool thing to to be doing so i think almost by categorizing it we romanticize it but that being said do carry on um so i'm gonna go through I'm just going to talk about a couple categories I never heard of. But essentially, yeah, the the aim is always the same. Um, a pro-dater, there's always – there is actually usually a face-to-face meeting. So usually with romance scams, the whole point is that I never meet you, right? Like um, you, you – I put up photos that have nothing to do with me. Obviously, we talk a lot about catfishing. There's a documentary about it in the early 2000s. And the idea is that I use all these photos. I catfish you. You, come, you know, you come into my web, my orb, and then it's all through language, right? It's all like to talk about love. I can really see the term pro data being just valorized and like incel forums and stuff like that. Definitely. He's a pro data man. It means that he can go where a 10, and a 10 out of 10 babe and the 10 out of 10 babe will uh, definitely give him all their money. And that's like that's alpha giga Chad territory. Dude bro language is so stupid, but I'm sorry. It's so stupid. It's so easy to mimic. And it's, it's right. Like I actually really was like, oh, what is a pro dater? Pro dater basically means that it's someone who does have a face-to-face meeting, but they do all the other things that a scammer would do or a romance scammer would do, except that the network has to be a bit broader because you're meeting someone face-to-face. So usually, for example, there are vendors who are in on the scheme. There are taxi drivers, right? Because you're creating a romantic experience. And so you need to have other participants in it. There's also something called um, a 419 scam um, where the scammer – this is an entire category – the scammer insists they need to marry in order to inherit millions of dollars of gold left by a father, comma, uncle, comma, or grandfather. A young woman – Comma slash sitcom (laughs) plot. A young woman will contact a victim and tell them of her plight, not being able to remove the gold from her country as she's unable to pay the duty or marriage taxes. The woman will be unable to inherit the fortune until she gets married, the marriage being a prerequisite of the father, comma, uncle, comma, or grandfather's will. 
<laughs> you know how your uncle really wants you to get married? But that's what I mean. Like, the fact that this is apparently a... And what I don't want to do, and I'm, I'm really being serious about this, is, like, I don't want to make this... Can you believe these fucking dum-dums who fall for these scams? But... So I don't want to make it... No, I'm the biggest fucking mark in the world. But... The I will tell you a, a brief anecdote. Yes, please. <laughs> nice advertising of that. <laughs> hey, my name is uh, uh, Jimmy. Uh, my social security <laughs> number is... Let me just get my credit card real quick. Um, this is, I don't know, good 15, 20 years ago. So this is when, like, Craigslist was kind of the only online marketplace that, like, I was aware of, mm -hmm. right? And I had my first summer job, and I was like, I'm going to buy myself a real fancy bag because I had great money instincts. <laughs> Like, what's what's something that's like a car that the second you buy it, it loses value, um, but costs less than a car? Uh -huh. And uh, somebody was advertising an Hermes Kelly bag. And it's interesting that you've basically flagged selling cars and bags already essentially as a scam. But, like, <laughs> carry on. Correct, correct. Um, and somebody had advertised a Kelly bag. And again, you know, I, I have a Grace Kelly thing. Um, for a thousand bucks or best offer. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a thousand's a little out of my price range, but, uh, you know, where, where were you willing to go to? <laughs> and the person just writes back one sentence. How much are you willing to pay? <laughs> and I was like, first of all, a thousand bucks for a Kelly bag is way too low. Like for, unless it's in absolute garbage condition, mm -hmm. which this wasn't, <laughs> but, I, I will say I'm not such a mark that I didn't recognize that second email as a sign of a scam. <laughs> but that's important. That really is because I don't, I mean, I'm not just saying this to be nice. I don't actually think that is you being a great mark. I think that's you seeing something and going like, could it be? Because there are, of course, there are coincidences. There are also like our deals that are kind of too good to be true. But what strikes me with romance scams is that when I read through them, they're essentially like any other scam in that. They're like any other scam slash any other potentially bad relationship. There are usually 15 billion other red flags that come up before the part where the person – often this happens actually more often than you realize. The person ends up like forking over $2.5 million before they realize, oh, it's a scam, right? And so like as a, you know, a third person, a third party like reading this article or this story, you go, come on. Sarah, you know, like, of course, there were all these other because it's usually like there's a lot of emotional manipulation, right? There's a lot of like love bombing and things like that. Well, it also depends on how much you want it for any it. scam. In some ways, romance and like we scamming. all want love. Exactly. Yeah. Romance scamming feels even more shitty, frankly, than other types of scams because it's not just money. It is 100%. I know I've identified you as being a vulnerable person, as being someone who really needs love in this moment as someone like a lot of romance scammers will try to find people who are reeling from you know the recent loss of someone who was close to them right like someone who their kids have just moved out things like that right like so they really are targeting lonely people but it's but and i really and i want to point this out too because if you are not in that position you read about someone else's plight and you just keep thinking but this person's obviously just objectively terrible before you even get it to the part where they take all your money and they try to sell you on these like fake Bitcoin shit. It's um, it's like negging if which is already just the worst. Mm -hmm. But it's like negging if the point of negging was to steal your purse. <laughs> like, 
exactly. like not just to get you into bed, but to get you into bed and then just take your money. Exactly. It's the fact that, I mean, as I think you said, is that like scams are based on the reason people fall for scams is because of need and desire. Mm-hmm. And somehow when people have need and desire for money, which is what more traditional scams are based on, it's like, you know, you can here's a way to fuck people over or here's free money. You almost don't feel that you feel that they deserve it slightly more because like they're being greedy. They're trying to get something for nothing. Whereas when you're playing on people's need for love or desire for love, that seems unfair because that seems a more kind of like a natural thing to right. to want to have. And it doesn't seem so selfish almost. Yeah, that's it. Honestly, like if the Kelly bag scammer had written back to me and been like, I could take 500 for it. I just really, you know, need to liquid. It's my mom's old stuff, whatever. I would have been like, yes, <laughs> they don't know what they're missing. You know? exactly. And like, yeah, it would have been greed and desire and all of that. But uh, it would have been, I don't know. Then I get into the scammer mindset of like, it would have been a little bit my fault. Um, I will say also that it, put, for me at least, put the traditional idea of big air quotes, gold diggers or gold digging in perspective, because if someone's a gold digger, they still have to deal with you, right? Like, yeah, they get your millions and billions, but you know, they still have to sleep. Next- it's like a job, like it's a it's a fucking job. I'm so exactly, and so we can make fun of gold diggers all we fucking want, Kanye goddamn West, but it's it's a full time position. You are earning that money. Is it even any more that's, though? That's why big air quotes. Frankly, as just women in like working full-time jobs has gotten so normalized in the past 40 years, the idea of like this isn't I think something women wanted to do like because yeah. because it was super fun to be with this person. Exactly. And there are plenty of men who do it, and they somehow evade the title, even though it's exactly the fucking same thing. Again, I'm not saying that, like, that is what we should aspire to when it comes to love, when it comes to romance. But I'm just saying romance scamming seems to be, oh, I don't want to do the work either, right? Like, it feels like the way that people talked about millennials being interns and being like, oh, you want to have the Jamba Juice and you don't want to work a full-time job. This, to me, feels like millennial gold digging, right? (laughs) Like, it feels like, oh, but I don't want to do the work. I just want the money part. Babe, we all want the money part. (laughs) And the rest of us are meeting people and dating and having jobs. Okay, but scamming is work. Imagine trying to convince all these people how that you're in love with them and saying cr- crime is work, which I actually crime is work. <laughs> so I'm so glad you brought this up because I want to ask the two of you, what would be your romance scam? Um, look, I, I'm it's just chaos in my brain always, but you've given it more chaos now. And I had two answers, which neither of which makes sense. The first was just boobs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just boobs. I guess I think that's my selling point. Um, Will will people pay me for boobs? Um, it's not really scamming, though, is it? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, I want them back. I want them back at the end of the day. I'm obsessed with this respect. And then the second one was unicorn because you know how like that that's the thing is like 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 couples straight couples are always looking for a like a bi girl to be like in a threesome with them. That you've been a literal unicorn. <laughs> the third was I'm a unicorn. <laughs> And I wear a horn and I try to give it. No, that would be so hard. And I was just like, but then I was like, no, but they could talk to each other. And I feel like unless they both want it equally, which I feel like a lot of couples getting a third person in don't. And that's the problem. 
Um, so one of them is eventually going to twig too. So um, I've got boobs and scamming straight couples. Mm-hmm. I don't hate either of these, but I also don't see how to make money out of them. Yeah. So I'm thinking, like, it was the unicorn comment which has made me think about my romance scam. He's going to sell Rachel's boobs. <laughs> I think that the only way that I could feel that it was okay to scam somebody is both if they seem to be being, like, so insanely stupid that they deserve to be scammed, but also be somehow that I could almost believe in their, like this flight of imagination that they have gone on. So I kind of like the idea of sending an email and saying, I'm some Greek god. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've been... I'm the Duke of England. <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm Dionysus. I've been stuck in the internet. Um, I'm in love with you. I've I've been able to track all of your. This is and, and explain some kind of thing and say that. Um, oh man, Chris has gone way hard into. The- I love it. I fucking love. So the only the only way I can get out of the internet is if I can pay off the sort of internet uh, people with. So send Bitcoin to me. Do you know when they talk about internet trolls? Those are real trolls keeping me from brevet crossing over the bridge. I- Chris Frighten, this is extremely amazing. And so as I say, if somebody believed me in that, in some ways I would be like, oh, what a glorious thing that I have given them that they believe that there is a god in the internet who they're trying to release by sending know. money. But if they believe you're Dionysus, that's that's just a level of delusion that that is kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. Or they're or they're just appreciating your literary aplomb and kind of acting like a Medici style patron. <laughs> oh my God, you're literally the Deus in the maxi- machina that's exing. Yeah, and that's and and then and they're in love and then they be. Ah, oh my God, I'm so friends. sorry. Anybody ever taught you that? <laughs> <laughs> they'd be hanging out with their friends and they'd be like, "Yeah, I'm kind of seeing this guy. Yeah, he's he's actually a Greek god who's but he's caught in the internet right now, yeah. and I'm sending him money to to release him from the internet." Would you send them a link to the show Lucifer and be like, my cousin, there's a documentary about him if you just want to check it out, just to kind of see what... Or like Rick Riordan books. The... Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would do all that, yes. <laughs> With your Amazon affiliate link so you'd make 4% from when they purchased them. I would constantly be seeing how hard I could push it. After a while, I'd probably I'd probably get so into it myself that I'd be like, oh, maybe I want to meet this person. So yeah. I'd sort of like, I'd get myself a kind of like a pair of trousers which looked like they were fawn's legs and um, and so now you're pan on a, a strap-on beard uh yeah pan <laughs> yeah pan dionysus whatever i mean like and i turn up at that strap on beard chris you already have a beard you have a regular beard that grows out of your face and i mean i am playing a, a god but it's i am i'm and but still two beards i can't imagine two beards wow what kind of creature would have two beards apart from a mythical one <laughs> That's true. That's and honestly, Chris's desired mark. That's what they would say. Beards on beards on beards, beards on beards on beards. Ah, this is my second godly beard. <laughs> <laughs> no one else can see it. Oh, that's what you should say. No one else can see it. And then you would have us as plants in like the audience, like when you guys go outside, and she would be like, "Can you you see both beards?" And then we would go, "I just see the one." And she'd be like, "No, no, you don't see that." And then we'd be like, "No, we can't." What What are you talking about? <laughs> um. So. My plan, no um, surprise here, would involve celebrities if I was going to be a romance scammer. So what I was thinking was that I don't think that I really shine in the role of, 
oh, I'm the Lothario that you're supposed to fall in love with. I just don't think that's where I'm – that's where my ta- that's not where my talents are best suited. What I was thinking was, though, I could pose as two different personal assistants to two <laughs> – hear me out. Follow me on this journey. To two celebrities who I am secretly very much in love with and who I kind of ship anyway. And I would, and I would be their personal assistant to the other person, right? And I would go, hey um, – I almost said a name, but I actually don't want him to be happy at all. So I'm not going to – hey, Tom. Sure. Um, you know, so Miss – I don't know Shakira's last name. <laughs> I think it's Shakira. Shakira, Shakira? Shakira, thank you, of course. And she said it a number of times. I'm sorry, Shakira. You know, Madame Shakira has kind of been talking a lot about you, and I think she's a little bit nervous. And I decided to take it upon myself to, you know, reach out to you and just say that – but then I would – from a different email address, from a different type of internet, email Shakira Shakira and be like, you know, Monsieur Cruz. And then you get the photo when you sell it to the tabloids. Exactly. exactly. So, so I would basically engineer them meeting in the first place. At that point, it doesn't even matter if they actually like like each other or hook up, right? Again, as you said, I have the photos. I'm in the bushes. I'm the paparazzi. So sorry, Prince Harry, but it's a different thing. Your girl needs money. And then I would fucking sell that to TMZ and shit. This is brilliant. I really think that uh, th- all of these plans are really indicative of our personalities. Yes. Nav has like a solid business plan that involves some of her interests. Chris is just making up nonsense. And apparently... I'm starting an OnlyFans called Boobs Unicorn because <laughs> I'm just I'm just garbage brained. <laughs> Unicorn, <laughs> better than Uniboob. <laughs> you need boob. You need a boob. Look, I could do it, but nobody's gonna pay to see that. <laughs> just like a pendant, like just swinging between your my collarbone, like my Uniboob. <laughs> Look, we are so happy to be part of the congregation, Ms. Goddess. We are here for you. Lacey Mosley, if you want to come on our podcast, and literally anytime. If you want to scam me, I would be honored. 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 Contact for credit card and social security info. Right here. From all of us in Paris, this is Boobs Unicorn. <laughs> And now it's time for a different kind of love story. In a We'll Always Have Paris First, Chris is going to tell us about a very special song. (laughs) (laughs) It makes it sound like I wrote it. Which, again, I definitely thought was what we were going to be talking about. I'm not joking until about half an hour ago. (laughs) Please, can we do my song? Disappointment from here. It's not, spoiler, it's not actually a song that I wrote. Uh, Instead, it's a song sounding not unlike the We'll Always Have Paris theme tune um, called Where Do You Go To by Lovely by Peter Sarstedt in 1969. Uh, Do you guys know this song? Yes. I listened to this song the first time that I came up to this country house, Chris's family country house, in the car with all of our friends, because I was driving like a maniac and making them listen to my 1960s classics. <laughs> wow, great. I mean, the first time I heard it was on the uh, the beginning of uh, Darjeeling Limited. I, there's like a, a short at the beginning of that film by Wes Anderson called The Hotel Chevalier. For me, that was the first time I heard it. Yeah. 
Well, I am the Wes Anderson of this group. I think we can <laughs> all agree. Um, Absolutely. Sometimes I'm a little too twee. <laughs> it's where uh, in, in the short, it's about this uh, fraught affair by two characters played by Jason Schwartzman and Natalie Portman. And this song comes on Where Do You Go To My Lovely is played uh, via, in a very Wes Anderson move, uh, Jason Schwartzman's iPod. He puts it on. It's kind of like his seduction music. <laughs> Yep. And one could argue that the short is far better than Darjeeling Limited, but that's a whole other conversation. I think one could definitely argue that. Yeah. So just very quickly, uh, Peter Sarsted, he was a British musician. He was actually born in India and he had a moderately successful recording career during the 1960s with this was by far and away his standout track. To me, it has that Taylor, uh, Taylor Swift specificity mm-hmm. where I'm like, this is so weird. She's like, I've never been on Cornelia Street in October looking at a blue Cadillac. I think he got it. Yeah, <laughs> he got it. Like comparing Sarsdett and Taylor Swift. Um, I'm not a comparison I thought we would be coming up with, but I see what you mean. Yeah, I completely agree. I, by the terms of my influencer agreement, I have to mention her one time per episode. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's been described as a faux European waltz tune. I don't really know what that means, but. But again, much like the song, it hits. Like, I get what they mean. <laughs> uh, they mean that England isn't European. I'm so sorry. <laughs> they predicted Brexit. <laughs> hey, look, that's why I'm here. Um, but with so with, uh, that's a, a very brief background uh, done. And now we're going to just leap straight into the song itself. Wait, before we do, did he write it? Yes, he wrote it. Yeah, he is the writer of the song. He wrote it while he was busking in Copenhagen in 1966. And uh, it just came to him somehow <laughs> that, that's all i've got on that unfortunately i can only imagine the danish version wasn't quite as sexy <laughs> <laughs> he said that it was um about about a generic european woman was his description of it <laughs> you know i respect that at least he's being honest like it's true. You know, he's not like oh i was thinking of like cersei mixed with bobo he's like she was some lady well, so I think we're going to dive straight in and talk about this generic European woman, uh, otherwise known as Marie Claire, who is a fabulous French, well, a, a fabulous socialite living in Paris. And I'm going to go through the various things of how she's described in the song. And I want you to not rank them out of 10 in regard to their fabulousness, but sort of like, uh, let me tell me how appealing it sounds to have these attributes for yourself. Should we use the ooh la la scale? So the more fabulous it is, we go ooh la la la. Are we kind of, should we do that? Do you, you can. I want to follow the rules. <laughs> okay. Um, the innovative one. <laughs> So, first of all, then, we've got a, a, a voice like Marlena Dietrich. Um, six. <laughs> six ooh-la-las? Or... <laughs> yeah, on the scale of one to ten ooh-la-las, which is, I believe, what we finally agreed upon. Absolutely. Um, six ooh-la-las. It's a good voice, but I like my voice. I don't necessarily need to change it. Mm-hmm. If I were going to change it, that would be in the running. Yeah, I think... I, I grade it higher, maybe like a seven, because the voice itself is fine. But to be compared to Marlena Dietrich is the real flex there. There you go. You know, so you have to give an extra point, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and she dances like Zizi Jean-Mer. I don't know who that is. Ten out of ten, because it just sounds hot. One out of ten. Wow, I thought that you would know who this was, Rachel. Ballerina. I was, but yeah, she's a ballerina. She's a famous French ballerina. Ballerinas don't stay famous that long. 
<laughs> Read my book, The Ballerinas. <laughs> but being able to dance like a famous French ballerina? Oh, yeah. No, 10 out of 10. Now then I know it's a ballerina. No, no. But 10 out of 10 also because of the name. That just sounds like, of course I want to dance like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she could be a peanut butter spreader. But it's also, how does he know that? Is he like, is she doing this in clubs? Because then, then, then zero. Ben zero. Then Minus a hundred. Minus a hundred. <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> Presumably it's the esprit of Zizi, though, that she's just grooving away to in club. Oh, negative one to esprit, though. The brand and also describing people with it. <laughs> that was a la-la <laughs> uh, All of her clothes are made by Balmain. Ten. Ten. I don't, Balmain, I'm assuming, is a fashion designer, a fashion house. No. I want to go through the rest of this and it's your house, so I'm not going to tell you to leave. <laughs> We're just going to tell you to Google it and feel shamed later. <laughs> Let us leave the premises first. You know what? You should have your private shame. Yeah, exactly. Have you heard of Versace? I mean, like, I feel, I feel like I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I said to my mother when we first came to Paris, look, mom, they have a real uh, Givenchy store. Well, no way. I know who that is. I'm not a bumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Ben. <laughs> They live at Giverny, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got some gucky shoes as well. I could say. <laughs> All the dads out there, you're welcome. <laughs> These aren't from gucky; they're from uh, Kelvin Klein. <laughs> so, she is friends with Sasha Distel. Ooh la la scale. Ooh la 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 la. I mean, can you imagine having a friend named Sasha Distel? He's a French singer. God, he... Oh, sorry. I was going on vibes. Yeah. Um, and spoiler, a lot of the song's enjoyment for me is vibes. <laughs> yeah, I also just want our listeners to know that if you don't know who this is, that's okay. Because we don't know, and how could you know if we don't know? French singer named Sasha, yeah, 8 out of 10. Yeah, and Sasha Distel? They might own a distillery. All right, so moving on to more concrete things that uh, it's more possible to have in this current day and age. Um, you've got a fancy apartment on the just off the Boulevard Saint-Michel. Seven out of ten because so touristy now. But just off makes it maybe go up to eight because we don't know because that's cagey enough that it could be touristy or it could be one of those those places in the fifth that kind of feel like a village and you know it's a little bit like shadowed alleyways. Those are hot. If it doesn't look out onto a street, if it look if if it's interior courtyard, ten yes. out of ten. Oh right, I see. but like you can't think of a, a more salubrious area of Paris that you think could be more oulala than just off the Boulevard Saint Michel. So I. I'm going to co-opt your dream here and say anywhere like right on the edge of Bouchamont for me would be very ooh-la-la. Um, it's a bit bobo though. like. But I think that so was this area in the Saint-Michel area in the 60s. And I have a dream house that's really close to uh, Belleville. So that would be like my ooh-la-la-la-la. Belleville, great. Um, parts of the 11th. I have a little soft spot for the seventh, but um, okay. like just as a like bastion of the rich, I have no excuse for it. Oh, I absolutely see that. Yeah, I'm. I think I'm like more eighteenth, twentieth gal. Mm. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's like it, yeah, that's what we say. Chris, he's such a he's such a twentieth gal. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you're you're keeping or she's keeping there a a painting that she stole from Picasso. Hot. 10 out of 20 out of 15 out of 10 yeah. a million a million steal everything from picasso burn him to the ground give her the keys to the city i can't argue with that a, uh, a painting that you stole from picasso is is pretty 
pretty ooh-la-la. Because it's definitely like the actual painting, right? It's not like she painted a painting in the style that she stole from Picasso. We're, that's definitely not worth Or like a painting by some rando that Picasso just happened. Right, exactly. Because, wow, the points are dwindling now. Oh, that's still pretty hot points if you're uh, in Picasso's place and you're sticking. Yeah, you know what? If he has it and he wants it, I want him not to have it. Yeah. No matter yeah. what, 10 out of 10. And if it's an actual Picasso, a million. Perfect. <laughs> Picasso, not a friend of the pod. Picasso, <laughs> um, noted enemy of the yeah, pod. Exactly. <laughs> now... I think this is definitely a 10 out of 10, but I need to get your opinion. She's uh, been given, she was gifted a racehorse for Christmas by the Aga Khan. Uh, Aga Khan is a, was a very, very wealthy, uh, he's still alive actually, but a very, very wealthy uh, Islamic leader who was all over the news in the 1960s, apparently, for being wealthy and owning racehorses. And he's gifted her one and she keeps it just for fun. <laughs> um okay getting a racehorse i'm going to separate this out and put it together right. got to break it down yeah getting a racehorse 10 out of 10 keeping the racehorse 10 out of 10 if you're still training it properly mm-hmm. and like allowing yes, it to yeah. run um don't just like let the racehorse sit there like in your apartment in your apartment <laughs> I want it properly stabled, fed. <laughs> Your fancy apartment just off the Boulevard Saint-Michel. It's enormous. <laughs> like racehorses are treated really badly. So you can also just, you know, take it to a little horse refuge. That for me, 20 out of 10. Um, the, the, the Aga Khan gave you, I guess it's better that he has a little less money. Politics, famously not great, I believe. I believe so. Yeah. Um, just based on Middle East dictator, I'm going to say no. So a little bit of Robin Hooding in a strange way. Yeah, Robin Hooding and... Um, uh, yeah, and it's a story to tell. And honestly, in a song, to have lyrics that are really ha ah, ha ha, ha five billion out of ten, flex, <laughs> get it, Peter, busk away. But also, what did she do to the Aga Khan to get that racehorse? Uh-huh. Minus a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so she's holidaying in uh, Joan Le Pin, which uh, I didn't know where that was, but it's down on the Côte d'Azur. That sounds nice. And since I've never heard of it, it means it's not that touristy. Yeah, 15 out of 10. 15 out of 10. Yeah, we've thrown out the scale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll second that, so 30 out. Perfect, yeah. Okay, yeah. Côte d'Azur is the sort of the, the ulalarist uh, area that you can think of going on holiday, like? Uh, maybe in the traditional ulala sense. I don't particularly want to go there. I hate the heat. I hate crowds. But as Rachel pointed out, if it's kind of an enclave of the rich and famous that we have never heard of, that's why, that's why she gets that extra boost of points. Right. Oh, yeah, no, a secret... Like a, a secret island in the Mediterranean. Right. I, I feel like it's like the Turks and Caico of the Côte d'Azur. Yeah. We're in. We'll go. And then we'll talk. Do you think you prefer her winter holiday destination, which is Saint Moritz? Yeah. 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 So Saint Moritz gets more Ulala's the ski, ski resort, right? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to ski, but. <clears throat> oh, God, no. <laughs> I will take my suitcase full of hardcover books yeah, and meet exactly. you in front of the fire. And I just feel like, yeah, the Saint Moritz wardrobe is going to be much more sumptuous. We're talking fur hats, faux fur hats. We're talking gorgeous cloaks. Yeah, no, it just it's more fabulous. By the way, I, I missed out the uh, very important part about when she goes uh, on holiday in uh, on the Côte d'Azur, which is uh, obviously that she has this carefully designed topless swimsuit, mm-hmm, right? Uh, which helps her get an even suntan on her back and on her front and on her legs. Yeah. <laughs> All of that, by the way, is delineated in this song. <laughs> this is not Chris just being a little bit weird. This is, These are the lyrics of the song. <laughs> also, okay. Bear with me here, right? Topless in swimsuit, yeah, you don't get the 
tan lines. So at, at first I imagined this as like a, a one piece with just cut out around the boob. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, that wouldn't give you what you want. So it's just the bikini bottoms. Yeah. But then you're still getting, you're not getting an even tan. There's just no word for the part that like a bikini, right. your bikini area. Which is why I think he's really clear in mentioning down your back and down your legs. So he wants us to know her butt white as day <laughs> you, you got those you got those mrs robinson tan lines Absolutely. and um also buddy no swimsuit covers your legs since at least 1920 that was never the issue <laughs> you just wanted to talk about her legs exactly <laughs> you creep yeah i i don't know why it needs to be carefully designed that is uh, <laughs> you could really just wear underwear <laughs> <laughs> big questions of the song but i would also say that i think tan lines in them like really strong tan lines they are also quite ooh la la are they not they yeah be. it's a case by case for me i mean not with the sunburn but like an actual tan line i wouldn't know because i've never had one <laughs> <laughs> but in my research just i just pink in and then fade all right but here's the kicker for the song uh this is the sort of the twist the twist ending i love a song with a twist ending mm-hmm. um is that um and why the refrain is where do you, it's being sung to her by this person who wonders where she goes to when she's alone in her bed, what's going on in her mind. Because the truth behind Marie Claire is that she grew up on the back streets of Naples when... She's Italian, that's the twist. <laughs> when her and the person who's singing the song, the singer, were just uh, two children, they were begging in rags and they were held by this burning ambition that they wanted to get out and become socialites and become things in the world. And, you know, do people care about that, like in the the world that she's found her way into? And the question is, how important do you think that is in being a socialite? Do you think that adds to her socialite status or do you think it would take away from it? Very particular 1960s question, pre-internet question. You can't uh, do the mysterious lady with mysterious past anymore. Google Google will not have it. Exactly. And it's a tough, it's really a tough line to toe because I think you are always going to benefit from having, um, as you were saying, Rachel, kind of that air of mystery, of enigma, things, maybe a touch of sordidness, but it can't ever be proven. Once you are a fallen socialite, then you are fallen. There's really no way to come back from that. Um, so you have to maintain, you have to maintain the air of being sordid without ever descending into tawdry. And that's tough. That's very tough. This is amazing life advice for becoming a socialite. <laughs> Thank you. This song does feel, it does kind of feel like an autobiography for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so because this is uh, We'll Always Have Paris and we are supposed to be talking about love stories, I've decided at a stretch that the love story in this song is the person who, the, the character that uh, Peter Sarsdott is putting on. Um, this person who grew up in the back streets of Naples with Marie Claire, which probably isn't her real name. No, it definitely isn't. She definitely saw a magazine and was like, oh, that's my name. It was either that or Esquire. And <laughs> she just chose the one that had two words. Oh, oh Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you. I am Gentleman's Quarterly. <laughs> you know what? This is actually <laughs> this is actually true, is that um, he did name her after the magazine. Really? <laughs> He's somebody who's never met a woman before and was like, ah, people will never know. (laughs) So, yeah, there's not a huge, I mean, this is probably more thought (laughs) being put into this song than has ever been put into it before. But with that in mind, I want to ask you, I mean, so this person who he knows Marie Claire, he he knows the scars that she holds deep inside. He sings that they say that when she gets married, it's going to be to a millionaire. Um, But 
Do you think that she'd be happier with the millionaire or do you think she's happier with... Not in today's market. (laughs) (laughs) As Succession has really informed us, five million is fucking nothing. (laughs) Well, all right. Let's say a billionaire then. Billionaire or her childhood friend who she shared this burning ambition with. I've got a real kind of like my brilliant friend kind of vibe also from this. Yes, yes. And you know what? I think... So I think at least we're we're supposed to understand from the singer's perspective that, no, of course, she's not going to be as happy with the billionaire, because one of the things that I love about the song is, and forgive me, I have no music terms whatsoever, so I'm going to just do the best I can. The soundies. Uh, yes, exactly. Thank, thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, there's something slightly menacing about the the kind of music box uh, like quality of the of the music i guess like the faux european waltz yeah exactly well, thank you <laughs> yes exactly there's something kind of driving it a little bit like, uh, driving us and per- um per- something propulsive i should say within the tune and within kind of the air of the song and so i always listen to it and feel not not sad not happy but just slightly unsettled and there seems to be a little bit of a sense of you don't know what's coming there's some there's something foreboding about the future that seems so perfectly mapped out for her the consequences are going to be far worse than she might even have anticipated. Yeah, but I would, um, if I can give her a piece of advice, marry the billionaire. There you go. Kill the billionaire. <laughs> yes. Marry your childhood friend or just fuck him. Yeah, perfect. Rachel leaping ahead there. <laughs> oh, no. I hope those weren't the three. <laughs> Uh, no, she ha- you haven't stepped on any toes. I, we we we're more creative than that. I hope the uneven uh, the even suntan is one of the options later. <laughs> I hope the racehorse. Is. Yeah. <laughs> we'll always have Paris. We'll be right back with more of the love story. We'll always have Paris is brought to you by Lingoda. Do you guys remember your first day in France as an adult on your own? Yeah, I do. I thought I was walking in a movie the whole day. And you had no awkward encounters that ruptured that dream? Oh, I did, but I thought I was being a charming American. I didn't realize that I was just kind of a slob. (laughs) What about you, Chris? (laughs) I remember actually going to a cafe and I ordered an Americano. Uh, and this was a cafe near the Rue de Rivoli. And the Americano came, uh, just a big cup of coffee. Um, and it cost me 10 euros. Oh, my God. A cup of coffee. And it, yeah, only lately did I realize that you're supposed to ask for an allongé. And by asking for an Americano, I had uh, just obviously shown myself to be a complete outsider and foreigner. And, and they give you American prices. <laughs> yeah, OK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That was my exact same experience. The first day that I had here studying abroad, I went to a cafe feeling very much like the writers I'd always dreamed of being. I sat down and ordered what I thought was a coffee with milk, (laughs) and they came out with a weird syrupy thing (laughs) that was not even a coffee. (laughs) And at this point, I had had 10 years of French classes in school, so I was not pleased to discover that the time I'd actually spent speaking French was pretty minimal because I'd been in classes of about 30 people. So if you want to be understood and not ripped off, two of 
any traveler's goals to Paris, let's face it. We suggest taking courses with Lingoda, the online language school that is going to help you achieve your goals super fast. Lingoda has this program called Sprints. These are two-month learning challenges where you take lessons intensively and you see big progress quickly. So that seems a little bit scary, you know, oh, intensively, but what we're talking about is 60 minutes a day or every other day for two months, 60 days. If you do this and follow a few other simple rules, you get 50% cash back off of the course cost if you do the sprint, which is a course every other day, and 100% cash back if you take the super sprint, which is a 60-minute course every day. And you're thinking, I've got a job. I'm not Hemingway paid to work for two hours at a newspaper once a week and spend the rest of my time hanging out in cafes. We get it. These are 24-7 live online courses. I checked at 1 a.m. the other morning. They were a million classes that I could pick. And they were all available to start uh, relatively in relatively short order. These are five people maximum classes. You will get lots of chances to speak with other learners and native level professors. So you get speaking, real life conversations, well learning about grammar structures in a really natural way. Then you can practice on your own with exercises and quizzes between classes on the Lingoda website. So if you go to lingoda.com and sign up, use our code ALWAYSPARIS20 for 20 euros or 20 25 US dollars off of the deposit, which again, you can get back in part or in whole if you just commit to learning French for 60 days. That's lingoda.com with the code ALWAYSPARIS20. Just a, a a little bit more then about the song itself. So it was it was often said that it was supposed to be about Sophia Loren. That is who kind like that is kind of the picture I had in my head. I can totally see that. Yes, Sophia Loren. I mean, you probably know more about Sophia Loren than I do, Rachel. <laughs> Um, Sophia Loren was a big actress in the sixties. Uh, came from Italy, moved to Hollywood. I, she was big in Italian cinema, big in American cinema. Um, did a film with Cary Grant called Houseboat, uh, among other things. She was a little bit of like an Elizabeth Taylor, very glamorous figure, uh, very curvy, notably like famously, and uh, just known as kind of like the glamorous sex symbol. Um, I believe she also had a perfume. She also has a really famous, infamous photo of her giving side-eye to, um, I think it's, is it Jane um, um, Mansfield? Oh, yes. That's going to be the cover for this one, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's wonderful. Jane Mansfield is kind of, is really preening for the camera. Boobs a go-go. And Sophia Loren is looking at her like, babe, <laughs> I grew up in the back streets of Naples. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the main two things that I found out about Sophia Loren is that yes, she did grow up in the back streets of Naples. I mean, the back street. I, although I think just Naples, actually. I mean, the way that it's implied is that all of Naples is back streets. Well, there are some of the front streets as well. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also that she's still alive, Sophia Loren, which I didn't know. Um, she's apparently there was a like a, a list of like uh, the AFI's fifty sort of cinematic actresses from the golden age, and she's the one sort of still left alive at the age of eighty eight. Sophia, 
in my next life, I want my job just to be making lists of people. <laughs> um, nice job, AFI interns. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was also uh, so. Uh, as I've already said, the spoiler is is that um, Sarsted uh, said that it was not about Sophia Loren and any connections with her were purely coincidental. Likewise, there was a bit of uh, theory that it could have been about his girlfriend, uh, Nina van Palant, uh, Palant um, who was a Danish singer and actress. But no, it was just about a generic European woman. Okay, so for the cover image, I should actually just have the Sophia Loren with a big X over her. Right. <laughs> this one's going to be hard. Or you could just do a stick figure and say, um, like, European Jane Doe. Right, do the Mary Claire logo over yeah, it. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So when the song came out, it, it got a pretty good reception, which has also been a little bit mixed over the years. Uh, there were a lot of people who really liked it, and they compared it to the sort of like French French songs by the likes of uh, Jacques Brel and Charles Aznavour. Uh, that kind of like chanson française sort of sound. So people like that as it bringing that sound into the UK. And it won the songwriting award in the UK called the Ivor Novello. The same year, it shared it, shared it jointly with Space Oddity by David Bowie. It's amazing to me that those songs came out the same year. First, you're absolutely right. David Bowie was truly a space alien time traveler. Yeah, maybe he was Peter Startstead. Maybe the song is about David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, twist, twist, twist! <laughs> David Bowie's character that we don't know about, the generic European woman face. <laughs> On the other hand, there's... a. Have you guys heard of the the DJ John Peel? He was a British DJ, sort of like, he was really big in the sort of 70s. P-E-E-L or P-E-A-L? <laughs> because I've heard of one of them. <laughs> I believe it's P-E-E-L. Oh, no, I don't know that one. Sorry. <laughs> I could not name you a single DJ ever. Oh, Yale's very good. <laughs> I'll, sh- I'll share some of his mashups later. Well, he was he was a big radio DJ, and he was like a small hero of mine uh, while I was growing up because John Peel was incredibly <laughs> He was a small hero of mine because he was incredibly short. <laughs> Rachel might be dying here. I bogeyed on podcasts. I'm done. Rachel is deceased. (laughs) My brain was just like, I can't do it anymore. (laughs) I'm going to short circuit now. You need to unplug me and restart me, guys. I believe John Peel was ordinary size. (laughs) But he was a hero of mine growing up. Um, Just because he was... uh, incredibly generous to all sorts of different kinds of music he just he crossed all sorts of genres and he was willing to give anything a listen he used to have this fantastic program uh on i think it was radio two like late in the evening in which you'd just get like really just crazy genres all mixed up together uh john peel described this song as the worst one that he'd ever heard uh so one thing i also wanted to ask you is um the reason that I wanted to pick this as something is because I think we've done a lot about the artistic life of of Paris, but we haven't maybe talked so much about this other thing which Paris is very like famous for, which is its glamour and its like the the life of socialites who exist in this city. And so I was going to ask just in passing, like, have you sort of had any experience where you've touched this world of glamour in Paris and um, and what have they been like and do you think it really exists in this way? I don't think Paris is good for a new glamour anymore. I think what it is what it does is kind of big corporate glamour at this point. 
um, you know, with with not this kind. Like for me, the more glamorous things would be like the bohemian stuff, which interests me more. But like even the more socialite people that I come in contact with, it's always through either education or like writing or the arts. So I'm I'm not sure that there are people who inhabit this kind of world. So the I think so from and this is obviously just based on my personal experience, uh, zero research done beyond that. To my understanding, there is a weird section of Paris that is actually family socialiteness. So, for example, there still are cotillions in France, and that is really from um, so. And for those who are American, um, we know about like, uh, you know, Southern Bells and debutante balls and things like that, where you are presented to society. A version of that does exist in France, but it really is specific families with very specific last names. And so, of course, that's slowly dying out. So it's a really small subsection of Paris. And it's not necessarily cool. Right. That's it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not, it it doesn't have the, it's not the huge apartment and Balmain and. Right. Exactly. You are not kind of. Uh, cozying up with the latest celebrity or the latest fashion designer. I think, as you said, Rachel, it's true that either you're, you are already in that milieu and you come to France or Paris and you buy a place, you summer here, you winter here, but you're not necessarily going to be integrated into Paris or you're not, and you're not looking to be integrated into Paris. You are using Paris as part of your portfolio. To people who come here for fashion week, that's kind of what I think of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, and then there are people, yeah, there are even Bohemians, though, more and more controversial. But I think a lot of the Bohemians in Paris are now us. Like, I don't I don't know if there are lots of French Bohemians left. I think that, you know, all of us expats came. We were like, we're obsessed Bohemians. And Paris was like, oh, fuck. And then and here we stay. <laughs> um, but that is again, I don't know if I'm right, obviously, but I ha- I just have the, the the suspicion that I am part of a colonizing force that has taken over something that was homegrown. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can. St- I think you can still catch sort of elements of glamour if you go and hang around like vernissages and yeah, so gallery openings. Effectively, that's still really like current in Paris. Nerd point sidebar: Do you know why they call them vernissages? No, uh-huh. because with oil paintings, you put a, a coat of glaze on it at the end, but oil takes forever to dry. So what they would do is uh, like opening night for friends and family. It was the day when you would like actually put the vernis, the the glaze mm-hmm. on the oil painting so it could drive in time to be shown to the public. That is very cool. You're welcome. I love that fact. That's great. <laughs> you can share it amongst your bohemian friends. <laughs> but only in English. <laughs> and then you do have like you know, that area um, around the around the Ritz near Place Concorde where there is still this like glamour which seems to sort of exude that. Well, that glamour might be like all of the kind of like high-end jewellery shops and uh, stuff like that. Which... But, you, but it feels feel like, so corporate. I was going to say, I also feel like I also feel like I never see French people there. All I hear there are American accents, like around Concorde and all those big stores. Like I don't hear... I make it sound like I frequent these places every day, um, but I work around there sometimes. And whenever I pass by these neighborhoods, I genuinely only hear Americans. I don't even hear British people anymore. The other thing is that you wouldn't, if you're buying most designer clothes from designers who aren't actually French and produce their clothes here, 
you're not going to buy it with the extra tax on it here. Right. You'd buy it in a country with a lower sales tax. And now we're going to go into maybe like a 10-minute speech, I think, about taxes in France versus tax in the U.S. Because I really do think, no, seriously, guys, I think this could be like a really important... Um... <laughs> Other verse in this song. They say you don't pay your taxes. <laughs> oh, God, he wrote one about me. <laughs> well, okay, so it seems that you're, you know, you're, you're sort of slamming on the idea of the, the lack of glamour in Paris. So as my final question then, I wanted to, to kind of try and imagine like what a, a modern Marie Claire would look like and who, where this socialite is is living, what she's doing, who she's friends with. I'm going to give, um, I'm, I'm going to describe one version of it because I think there are a few. My version is um, thin white woman, messy bun, oversized tweed blazer, black loafers, no socks. And torn jeans that end above the ankle. I'm, I'm taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of a studied sloppiness, but it turns out that they own their apartment in the 18th or, you know, like they are an art student at Beaux-Arts and they will be for 10 years or something. You know, like I think I think there's one version of like the maybe not secretly, but family wealth, art student, Parisienne, um, who's. You know, like where it is very much, as I said, like a, a studied kind of sloppiness, an intent, an intention of giving off a kind of exterior of plainness. But actually, of course, behind it, it's like, oh, my God, they're so lovely. I imagine that they would uh, claim to be a communist as well. Oh, definitely. And I would have a few pins saying that. And the like the jacket is a very expensive men's Harris tweed that her grandfather owned. Exactly. Something like that. Yes. The jeans are designer, but like niche micro designer, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. The shoes, the loafers might be her mother's like Gucci horse fit, yeah. but like they're super worn in. Yeah. And if they're not, then they're like handmade by, you know, one guy in Italy who makes a pair a year. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, you'd have to like pry that out of her though. Yes. Know, a little bit. Where's she going on holiday? Uh, is she going to John Le Pin or uh, Saint Moritz? Possibly still Saint Moritz. I think a family, their uh, her family home, and then the family homes of her friends. Yeah, I think mostly she's probably going outside of France. Yes, because it's so international travel is so much easier now. I think uh, a lot of these gonna f socialite families. Socialite families, debutantes um, now do kind of less touristy areas of Italy is mm -hmm. actually, ironically, really, uh, really big. Yeah. Um, Croatia a few years ago was super yeah, I think popping. Was, yeah. And I, I also think that it's really key to, I think in general, and again, big, these are big, broad generalities and cliches. But when I think of French glamour, I really do think of something that is not, that is unpracticed by design, right? That is, it's, it's just a little bit blurry around the edges, but what's at the center is real, it's beautiful, it's authentic, um, but you don't have the extra trappings, right? You're like This is not a person who's spending hours in front of the mirror perfecting their foundation, their blush, their lipstick, none of that, right? It, it really is supposed to be both a mix of someone who has the time to be a little bit indulgent in the morning and so they have to rush out the door and they didn't quite, you know, find the right jacket, but also doesn't, but is also flying around to all the galleries and the museums and they're busy and they know the cinema and they've heard of that author, you know? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think um, my my sister owns a book. Uh, I, I want to say I think she was given it as a Christmas present or something like that. It's called How to Be a Parisian or How to Be a Parisienne, and it's got a lot of uh, a lot of pieces of advice which are describing exactly somebody like that. Um, the one that I remember most was um, in How to Be a Parisian. One of the life instructions: always be fuckable. <laughs> 
that's not on you. Yeah. <laughs> that's on everybody else who does or doesn't want to fuck you. But also I want to add that I think now in Paris there's um what what really has changed I think especially from the 60s is that there's this <laughs> there's this renewed aesthetic uh, fervor for air quotes african stuff. Um so you'll have the tweed jacket, you'll have the loafers, right? But why not throw like a kente cloth scarf around your neck, right? Why not have enormous earrings, right? Like, and I know I'm really focusing on women. I, I guess I haven't really paid attention to men, um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know what they do. Um, Sounds not about a man, not at all. And also, to be fair, the the classic like straight man look in Paris, ironically for a city that's supposed to be the fashion capital of the world, is fairly boring. Like everyone really does kind of look the same after a while. Oh, they have it so easy. They really do, you know. Like, and even women, I'm. It's it's not. Paris is not known for its creativity, right? It's known maybe for the quality of the clothing and things like that. But if you walk down the street in Paris, everyone's dressed in black, white, and gray in different variations, right? Like you're not seeing many colorful things. But if you do, it's it's always something that calls to mind like, ah, yes, the jungles of Namibia or, you know. So there's there's also, yeah, there's been this kind of renewed um, kind of fascination with bringing in and I, Afri- and I'm saying African, not because I'm Prince Harry in disguise, but because like Africa, <laughs> because it, it is Prince Harry. <laughs> There's no like ethnic specificity by design, right? It is just supposed to be like I'm, you know, TM like trademark a global traveler. I'm a citizen of the world. Like all of those annoying cliches that we definitely all put in our undergraduate essays. Um, if you went to college around the same time that we did, <laughs> right? And I think that the biggest just practical difference between now and the '60s is that then, as you were saying. Like now it's very thrown on, you know, makeup, maybe you do a little mascara, you know, and just leave it uh, red lip. But that's pretty easy to do mm-hmm. while still looking good. Yes. that You do still see that. But back in the day, you would have had the cat eye mm-hmm. eyeliner, which takes forever to do. And uh, I think that that has, yeah, been replaced a little bit. And I think as glamour becomes more and more of an export of France, it always has been, of course. But I think in decades past, there was a sense of superiority, like, we the French do it better than you, you can come and try. But now it's being actively sold. And I think that necessarily when something becomes a product to be consumed and to be bought and sold, it also kind of loses its specificity, whatever makes it kind of maybe flawed, but also unique. And so we are speaking in generalities about French glamour because French glamour has, by 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 and large, become its own trademark, has become a product to be sold. I would argue that French glamour has always been commodity based, even at the courts of like, you know, Louis the 14th, where it could be argued emerged. Mm-hmm. He would wear so many clothes and introduce so many changes so that the nobles would go out and support the textile industry. Uh, and so that he didn't have to give, you know, support to industries directly, mm-hmm. but instead just be like, oh, now embroidery is in. Now you need a mirror like this. Now you need. And so he started changing fashion so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, to yeah, to support different crafts of absolutely like a hundred percent. But I think that French glamour, as in capital F, capital G, as a as a box, as just an object, not the specifics, right? Like not the individual items, not oh the, the, these fashion things, this perfume, etc. But just as a as a concept, almost I think has become to me at least feels more much more like a mass produced and mass sold idea in large part actually i do think and not and i don't mean to say this as negative or positive but as as paris has become and has it has been for a long time but as it increasingly becomes an object of fascination for ex, expatriates and specifically i would say like americans and british people i think that's also part of the thing that makes it to me feel less specific as as an idea and much more of a 
yeah, an idea or a notion to be sold. Yeah, I think a lot of that too has to do with the trajectory of the 20th century and the way that France was economically devastated and physically devastated by the Second World War in particular. Because at that point, what do you have? You have people going back to tradition, to the simple foods they could make cheaply, to, you know, clothes that could be, you know, elegant, but also durable and this and that. And then as, you know, over the last 70 years, uh, you know, has, has experienced primarily upswings, uh, realized that, yeah, those, those have become known for almost like inherent goodness, you know, like you say, French baguette, it's like, ooh la la. <laughs> well, there are a couple of things I just wanted to pick up on here to, like, go back a little bit to this idea of the, the modern uh, version of this uh, kind of glamorous socialite like Marie Claire. And it's interesting that um, in your description of this uh, fictional woman, she's got kind of like generational wealth, which is not something that Marie Claire does. Um, and and uh, but at the same time, she's almost trying to kind of like play down her glamour, or it, it's worn in a, a different way. And so I was wondering, like maybe a song like this, which is somewhat kind of sympathetic to it's a slightly comedic song obviously but it's still sympathetic to the character of Marie Claire and I wonder if a song like this about the sort of modern socialite in that way would actually be a lot more cutting because there's a degree to which they're almost trying to completely kind of hide from the glamour or kind of like play it play down the sheen somewhat yeah I think that there start to be so many levels that you might not even be able to correctly capture it with the song and a tone even if it were really ironic or whatever because it, you would what you would have is somebody uh without money or not coming from money who then pretends to be rich by having like a kind of bohemian thrown together look so it's about learning how to look rich by looking poor in the right way which is possible and i believe there are people who can do it but the signifiers of class have gotten so complicated mm -hmm. that... Uh, it's almost as though the the rich have kind of shifted. They realized that they were being too easily copied. And <laughs> so they had to kind of like complicate the, yeah, the, the signifiers that they had, that they showed who they were. Yeah, and you really start to see that emerging in the mid-2000s in fashion with... Um, Things like the like say Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen chic this idea and at the time everybody was like oh, they look you know like little urchins you know mm -hmm. with huge bags and just like a million layers of ripped clothing and yeah it's because at a certain point you don't need but the upper class feels that they need uh, things that are very hard to emulate. And when there's a certain uh, amount of accessibility in fashion, as was becoming the case then. Uh, yeah. Well, and also and also hard work is democratic, like anybody can work hard. So then it's not exclusive. It's not very fun. It's not it's I mean, it's not fun to do hard work, period. But it also is not it, it's not, I imagine, desirable to be like, if you just work really hard, you could actually get this. Fuck that. <laughs> it's no. like, yeah, if you work really hard, you're not going to get a third generation Harris tweed coat. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. We have to undercut you somehow, right? So very tenuously then, at last, to bring this back to some kind of love story. <laughs> um, who is the person who is singing to our modern French socialite and what is preventing their relationship from happening? It's her nerdy gay best friend from childhood. <laughs> it's not happening because he's gay. <laughs> I actually, 
I thought I, I thought where you were going was um, that it was another woman and she's actually the real love of our Mary Claire. But she's trying to hold like maybe she's trying to hold true to what she perceives to be like they both want to be artists and she's holding true to like what she perceives to be like the real bohemian ideals of artistry and Marie Claire has left her behind you know she's she's going to the glamorous parties right she's not making the art she just wants to be seen interspersed with the art And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. Chris, tell us who we're going to be taking to bed tonight. <laughs> I mean, or killing. <laughs> One and the same sometimes. <laughs> so I did have a, a, a different idea as to what I was going to ask you on this one. Um, but having recently, you know, having just been so shamed by um, not knowing who Balmain is. It's just, it's just every time. Pronouncing that right? Every time. I, I, it's blood running out of Chris's nose. <laughs> I thought I might take this opportunity to learn a thing or two. So I'm going to give you um, Marry, Fuck, Kill um, of your choice. Uh, sorry, you can choose either a French ha- fashion house of your choice, just a general uh, vintage clothing store, or a high street sh- uh, store of your choice. And if you could tell me the ones that you're choosing, which ones you're choosing and a little bit about them, that that would really help me in terms of uh, knowing more about what is it, fashion? (laughs) Okay. I am marrying French fashion house Carvin. Here is the why. They are designed for short women. So unlike a lot of high fashion stuff that assumes you're six foot tall. My heroes. Tiny John Peel. So Calvin. Carvin. Carvin. Carvin, like a car in a van. Yeah. Yes. If you have to, if you must. Let him have it. It's um, and they do really beautiful, well-made basics. And I feel like if I could primarily, you know, marry them, that's my everyday stuff. I'm going to fuck the vintage shop to have like a little, you know, every now and then have a little piece that is, there's one um, up in the 18th that I'm thinking of that has a really good mixture of, um, like, classic, you know, like, they'll have every now and then, like, an Hermes scarf or, like, those Gucci shoes, all of that. I am not giving them away the name on the podcast because I do not want that shit to be picked over um, and kill the high street, all of it, burn it to the ground. <laughs> kill the high street. Wow. Yep. I'm going to start with my kill, my favorite always, um, which is definitely the high street. Um, none of that stuff is made for anyone who's has a body. Uh, it, just, it just it never fucking looks good. So fucking take it out. Um, I am marrying a vintage shop. Again, I will not be revealing the whereabouts because I fucking love this place. Um, but it's a vintage thrift shop. I'll tell you what. It's in the 20th. Uh, find it um <laughs> but what i love about this place is that it's uh, of course um not as expensive as many of the pieces would originally be but what you find there is so unique it's so beautiful and it really is just outside of even when i when i you know take a look at like really expensive store windows it just feels a lot fresher so that would be my what i said i would marry them and then i i'm going to fuck dior 
because I was thinking that what Dior could give me would be the really beautiful classics that this great vintage store is not going to give me. So I'm going to go to the vintage store for the accessories, for the really standout pieces. But I need to have, you know, I want to have a crisply tailored white shirt as well to go underneath my, you know, stunning sequin peacock blue and purple cloak. Um, you know, I want to have nice shoes. I want to have nice quality. Um, and I also realized belatedly that a lot of the um, high fashion places that I would want to be in this list are Italian uh, because I am gaudy at heart. So that's where I'm going to go for the French too. Like basics that are very well done. Chris, your turn to name three shops. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to marry... Uh, I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm going to marry Girasol, I guess, which is the, the... It's not really a vintage shop so much as like a second hand. I was going <laughs> to... But it is very much where I get kind of clothes from. <laughs> um, I'm going to, you know, kill the high street because I think, you know, that's the, the correct thing to do. Um, which leaves me in the awkward position of naming a French fashion. Anyone, just just anyone will do. And it can't, it can't be Belma. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Um, or I'm going to try and name as many as I can. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> Um, I don't, Chanel, that's surely got to be a French fashion house, right? Yes, yes. and they do menswear. Okay. Because it doesn't count if they don't do menswear. Right. Um, Louis Vuitton, they're French. Yeah. Very good. Um, I, um, as you said them earlier. <laughs> I want everyone to know that Chris is half puddle, half human right now. It's it's very alarming. <laughs> yes, and you can get men's accessories at Hermes, I believe. Okay, and I mean... Now, I know that obviously Karl Lagerfeld is dead, but uh, I know that Lagerfeld sort of came off from Chanel at a certain point. And so is that its own fashion house now? You look so... Yes, <laughs> it is. Um, Lagerfeld's German, but he was Paris-based, so we'll give you that. And... You're going to marry all of them? Well, uh, no. <laughs> oh, we, we changed the game on him. Oh, he just has to name them. This is who I'm going to fuck as well. Um... And I think that I think you're gonna be too scared to fuck him. I can't say. <laughs> I mean, I like, I'm, too, I'm terrified when I even go into one of these. Stores. I was gonna say I can't imagine. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, like oh, um, Yves Saint Laurent. Ooh, oh, that's a great one. Givenchy, I gave it to you earlier. Yeah, yeah. also oh, good. Yeah. No, I'm not gonna. No, I'm not gonna change mine. But my God, classic Yves Saint Laurent. Yeah, yeah, you should fuck uh, Saint Laurent. I would be fucking Yves Saint Laurent. From us and all of our racehorses, <laughs> this has been <laughs> Mary Fuck Kill. <laughs>